How do you feel as you stand in a trench, awaiting the whistle to blow? Are you frightened, anxious, shaking with fear, or are you ready to go? All men react in a different way, but few to heroics aspire. But should a man boast that he never felt fear, then, in my book, that man is a liar. folks welcome back for episode 19 which be, which will be about the battle of Neuve Chapelle the opening was a poem written by sergeant harry fellows from the 12th northumberland fusilers as he described what it was like going over the top in a no man's land i hope everyone's doing good i hope everyone's staying healthy and staying safe i'm actually currently quarantined with coronavirus yes i caught it and let me tell you, folks, it has not been fun. It's been a roller coaster. Um, my temperature has gone between 99 and 103 for the past 10 days, up and down all day. You just can't control it. Um, I got a little cough, which I was worried about because you just don't want anything to turn into pneumonia. So I uh, called my doctor. He prescribed some antibiotics. So I'm taking that something for that my cough. Um, I've been living off Tylenol. So what can I say? It, it, it really has taken its toll. It, it hurts. My body's aching. Chest is hurting. My ox oxygen levels are still good. So we're still fighting through this and we're getting through it. And we're going to do what we got to do. All right. A couple admin notes. I'm still excited about the recent audio grade I did, but I'm thinking about upgrading again and soon. I've had my eye on a new microphone for some time and another piece of hardware, which is going to make the podcast really cool. I guess when I do, or if I do, I, sh I'll, I should have just updated then. Probably shouldn't have even brought it up until I'd actually do it. But uh, I'm just always excited about stuff like that. I'm going to start doing some research into getting a couple guests this year. I have a couple of ideas. I think it'll be fun. I think you'll really enjoy it. And of course, it will be focused around the Great War. I'm going to start reaching out to a few people to test the waters. I mean, it really depends on the individual's willingness to be interviewed. So hopefully I'll get something going soon. All right. So what am I drinking for this episode? I'm drinking Gatorade. Actually, for the past 10 days, all I've been drinking is water and Gatorade. I don't even want to see alcohol, smell alcohol. Just my body is just not feeling it. So it's uh, just lemon lime Gatorade for this episode. And it tastes pretty good. All right, looks like that's it for the admin notes. I thought I had more to bring up. Looks like I get more time to talk about the Great War. Okay, before I dive into the Battle of Neuve Chapelle, let me update you on what's been going on in the war so far for the year 1915. The French continued their attacks during the winter months leading up to the spring, but literally got nowhere with them. They would attack and get stopped like running into a brick wall. 
And this is why the French were putting pressure on the British to pull off their own attacks to draw focus off them. But I'm going to get into that shortly. The Austrians continued to attack the Russians at the Carpathians, and like the French, were unsuccessful. You know, the poor Austrians. If I could go back in time, I think I would want to go back and tell them, pack it up, boys. Go on home. I mean, if you think about it, up to this point, they haven't done done much. I would want to say a bad word, but I'm not going to get vulgar. All they've really done is got a lot of their own soldiers killed. Yes, I'll give them an A for courage, but sometimes you need a little more than courage. You also need the will to fight. The British and French continued their bombardment on the Dardanelles, which I'll return there on the next episode. But overall, so far it quickly turned into a complicated situation, which the British High Command didn't foresee, and which is pretty much the story of the Great War so far. A lot of people might be asking what the Serbs are doing for the war effort at this point. Well, another big event struck in the wintry month of January and struck down hard on those old Balkan bastards. It was the attack of typhus, the disease. They were on a six-month lockdown after being stricken by the epidemic and nobody including the Austrians wanted to get near them. Typhus was also called Laos disease. It's caused by bacteria transmitted through infected lice. Now today, it's uncommon for a person to get typhus, but you can still get it, and even from squirrels. And if somebody does get it, I believe it can be treated early with antibiotics. But in 1915, it wasn't so uncommon, and medicine obviously wasn't that advanced. And remember, these trenches the soldiers were living and fighting out of were extremely unsanitary. We're talking men finding any place suitable to defecate, often shell holes not far from the trench, sometimes even in the trench. Men were unbathed for God knows how long, dead rotting bodies were everywhere, and almost all the soldiers had lice at some point in the trench. It's just what it was. It's believed Laos first infected the Austrians sometime around the late fall of 1914. Then after leaving a great number of dead and wounded behind, naturally the Serbs got it. Out of the estimated 400 doctors in Serbia, almost all of them got it and a third of them died from it. A third of all their medical doctors. It didn't just spread among the soldiers, it somehow spread to everyone. This is why Austria said, we're not going near them anytime soon. The signs and symptoms for typhus are fever and chills, headache, rapid breathing, body and muscle aches, rash, cough, nausea, vomiting, confusion. Actually, kind of sounds like a bad hangover if you ask me, but I'm not a doctor, so don't assume you just had too much to drink if you have these symptoms. I would go see a doctor. All right, now let's get to the Battle of Neuve Chapelle. This was an important battle for the British because it exposed a few important facts. First, it proved to the French that they could indeed conduct an offensive assault with their, without their help, at least to a certain point. The Tommies were criticized by Joffre for their lack of strength to, to conduct an assault on their own. Yes, the outcome of Neuve Chapelle wasn't an overall British victory, but they did make a dent. They did regain their confidence, and mostly they caught the Germans by surprise, which would only happen maybe two more times throughout the whole war. And second, this exposed a major flaw in their communication. 
they'll get to a certain point in the plan, which is going going good, but then they found it almost impossible to relay information, sometimes taking hours as communication wires had been severed and they now depended on runners. And last, it exposed that the British overall bit off just a little more than they can chew for this battle. I have a quick story that relates to the last point. I was 19 years old, graduated boot camp at Fort Benning, Georgia. I believe it was a Friday and, we, and I had to check in on Monday for airborne school. So we had the weekend off. My family came to see me. My brother and I went out for some drinks and we took our, um, I don't really want to say it, but I don't know how to beat around the bush. So I'm going to say the name. We took another family member out with us. So there was three of us. We went out and yeah, we had a lot to drink. We were in a bar and Next thing you know, my brother looks, turns to me and says, oh my God, hey, look at so-and-so, you know, I think he's getting trouble over there. So, we next, we notice this, the guy with us is getting manhandled. One thing leads into another, goes outside, it kind of gets broken up. The story was, this guy was groping the bar owner's wife. So, <clears throat> anyways, it spilled outside, he got broken up. I'm pretty drunk, my brother separates me, this is my older brother. And uh, he realizes he left his he left his credit card in the bar. So, my brother goes back. They're still trying to break up this other guy. Oh, I got to make this a long story short. So, I saw this huge bouncer grab my brother. So naturally, I go over there and I hit the guy. Well, <laughs> that minute I hit the guy was one of the worst decisions decisions I've ever made in my life. I got. Pummeled, pummeled. I have never had my ass beat like that in my life. It turns out the guy was a bare knuckle boxer and a damn good one. So that instant his fist hit my head, I knew I bit off more than I could chew. Have you ever seen that movie Raising Arizona where Nicolas Cage is getting beat up by Randall Tex Cobb and he's like, He's just trying to dig his way under the car. That's that's literally how it was. I was just getting beat down trying to just claw my way underneath the car for safety. It was bad. I tell you what, I just bit off more than I could chew, man. <clears throat> but funny story now, wasn't funny at the time. That I'm telling you that Monday I had to check into airborne school with a concussion and let me tell you, that next few days was pretty rough. Anyways, this isn't exactly what happened to the British. They didn't get a, they didn't get a beat down like I got. But overall, they did bite off more than they could chew. And with the lack of resources to support the fight they picked. All right, let's talk about why this happened first. As I said, up to this point, Jaffa was still doubting the British ability to pull off an offensive. However, he felt it was crucial and the time was now for them to shoulder more sh their share of the weight of the war from Ypres to La Basse. And Sir John French surprisingly was more than willing to oblige and agreed to an all-British offensive at Neuve-Chapelle, pushing up to Aubers Ridge. This would be the first major solo BEF attack on German entrenched positions and will be conducted by the British 1st Army's 4th Corps and Indian Corps, and will be led by General Sir Douglas Haig. During the Great War, Sir Douglas Haig 
commanded the BEF from 1915 until the end of the war. His name came with controversy after the war. Some called him by his nickname Butcher Haig for the two million casualties taken under his command, while others praised his leadership. The German situation on the Western Front at this point was getting worse after a large chunk of soldiers had been moved to support the Eastern Front after Hindenburg and Ludendorff demanded more, which is also believed to be what influenced Sir John's and Haig's sudden confidence to attack without the Pailu supporting them. There were only two German divisions left to face the six divisions from the British 1st Army at Neuve-Chapelle, and they didn't have as many reserves available as they did the fall of 1914. But don't confuse that for them having nothing available, as you'll see. Now, if you can look up a map of Neuve-Chapelle, if, if you Google map it, most will be from this battle. Imagine a German trench that went around the town, creating a salient blocking the Allies from the west to the south of the town. A salient during the Great War was, was no man's land. It was a dead zone. And by dead, I mean where people went to brutally die. On top of that, it's also a very difficult place to occupy. Weeks before the battle kicked off, German snipers hiding in the ruined remains of the town behind the trenches made life hell for the Tommies. Sniping definitely didn't begin during the Great War. In fact, it dates back to the American Revolutionary War when colonists hid in trees plucking off British officers. The Whitworth rifle was the first official long-range sniper rifle invented by Sir Joseph Whitworth. I'm not even I'm not going to even try to debate who's the best sniper of all time is. I don't even think that argument can be won. Some will say it's Carlos Hathcock, some will say Vasily Zaitsev. Doesn't really matter in my book. I will however say who holds the record for the longest snipe and that is well I can't say who because his name was withheld, but it was a Canadian Special Forces soldier with a distance of 3,871 yards. I believe it was back in 2017. Now that's far, very far. In fact, it's a little over two miles long far. Obviously, ballistics and telescopic sights have changed since World War I, but you still have to give the Germans credit for being marksmen. A small group of men dug themselves in on the bombarded town of Neuve-Chapelle, hiding in rubble, waiting for a Tommy to, to expose himself. A British soldier can be in, in the trench eating his bully beef and biscuit, when all of a sudden he gets an extra side of brains gravy he didn't order because his pal exposed himself at the wrong time. And timing was key, which took patience. These snipers could be hiding for hours, sometimes even days, in the same spot just waiting for a shot. They constantly harassed the British leading up to the Battle of Neuve-Chapelle. The British objective was to bombard the front line of German trenches, then lift the firing so the infantry could take the trenches. The bombardment would then be shifted over to trap the fleeing Germans who fled back to the ruined town and at the same time to kill reinforcements coming to help. After this, the infantry would take the town, then finally, they would take the final objective, Aubers Ridge, a long stretch of high ground a mile east of Neuve-Chapelle. This would then allow the British to put pressure on the German-occupied town of Lille, and would cut the rail line on which the Germans were shuttling troops and guns between Antwerp and Alsace-Lorraine. 
Plan sounds good so far, right? These plans also meant there was a lot of work to get done before the kickoff. Bridges had to be constructed for the troops to cross in the open land over spots that were in rough condition. Miles of telephone wire had to be laid, and all of this had to be done under the cover of darkness. A soldier described it, saying, quote, We knew, of course, that we'd have to fight our way across the fields, so sodden with the winter rain that they were like morasses. Before battle, we had to throw bridges across drains and water courses, running through our own front so that the troops could concentrate quickly. We dragged our way up with ammunition, bombs, rations, sandbags, barbed wire, spare bridges, planks, hurdles, and iron pickets, and stored them at dumps in the fields. We were carrying all through the hours of darkness, night after night. It took a tremendous time to do this, but it never occurred to us to wonder what to expect when we crossed to the fields the Germans were holding, where we wouldn't have hundreds of bridges to help us over the watery parts, and we would still have our own fighting material to carry forward. Soldiers, we were more like sweating coolies. How we came to loathe the sodden tracks, with wire overhead, wire under our feet, every few yards and we still had to carry our rifles and ammunition with us. That was the military way. Although there was no danger of us being suddenly attacked, and we'd have been a lot more useful as coolies with them. Lance Corporal William Andrews, 4th Black Watch, end quote. Neuve-Chapelle, like most of northern France and Belgium, is very wet and soggy during the month of March. Knowing this, Haig still ordered for the attack to kick off on the 10th of March. The rain made some of the trenches uninhabitable, so the Germans at certain spots weren't even in them. They were above ground behind sandbags to provide at least a little protection from bullets and shrapnel. On March 10, 1915, the same day Lord Kitchener ordered the British 29th Infantry Division to the Dardanelles, the attack on Neuve-Chapelle opened up at 7.30 hours, 7.30 a.m., with a blistering bombardment of an ungodly amount of artillery shells, creating a massive inferno. In fact, an estimated 200,000 artillery shells were fired during the Battle of Neuve-Chapelle, and the majority was fired during the first 35 minutes before the infantry began their attack. Shell after shell, nonstop, kept exploding. The troops described the ground as a constant shaking and a rumbling. They could feel the earth moving beneath their feet. This was also one of the first times somebody decided to calculate the amount of shells firing per day or per week versus how much they were producing. And the numbers didn't look good because they were firing more than they were producing. Running out of artillery shells would not be good at this point. Now, the point of the artillery bombardment before releasing the ground troops wasn't only to pulverize as many Huns as possible in the trenches, it was also to cut down all the barbed wire that had been laid across the front trenches. They could bombard the trenches all they wanted, but if the barbed wire was still intact when, they inf when the infantry approached, they would have a real problem, and wire snippers were way too slow at this point. So how did they deal with this? What type of shells could they use to destroy the wire? Well, 
You can't use high explosive shells because this would just throw the barbed wire in the air and what goes up must come down and it will more than likely still be intact when it comes back down, thus not really solving the problem. They needed shrapnel shells, enough shrapnel to actually cut through the wire. And I can attest that this is how you can take care of a wire problem. Bangalore torpedoes would eventually be used in the war. They would also go on to be used in the Second World War, and they're still even used today. It's basically a length of pipe often threaded to allow connection of more pipes if needed with explosive charges. When detonated, it would rip apart the wire or other obstacles. I'm sure they look much different today than they did in 1915, but overall they did the same job. As a cherry private, when I first got to my unit, they had a modified version of a Bangalore tor torpedo. I don't want to say the name, I'm sure I can get in trouble if I do, <clears throat> but it was basically a metal stake and without going into too much detail, it's packed with an explosive. Then we would hurl it, hurl it like a javelin into the wire and boom, it would cut through the wire, creating an opening for troops to move through. Very simple, very fun to use. Under desperate conditions in the Great War and future conflicts, men would often throw themselves on the wire, allowing their fellow soldiers to run over them, crossing it over to the objective. But obviously that's not the preferred method. In this case, the artillery shell was filled with a half-inch, 170-grain lead antimony balls, about 41 balls equaled one pound, and the British were firing 18-pound shells at Neuve-Chapelle. When detonated, the individual bullets on average would travel around 400 feet per second, thus either slicing through human flesh like butter or ripping through the barbed wire. So the opening bombardment's purpose wasn't only to kill as many Germans as possible, it was also to create an opening for the soldiers to cross into the front trenches. The British had several hundred field guns, howitzers, along with heavy, other heavier guns. This amounted to something like one gun for every six yards of the front around Neuve-Chapelle. The Germans had only a fraction of what the British had in artillery at Neuve-Chapelle. And one important detail is that the, the British concentrated the majority of the guns on the center where most of the barbed wire were laid. Only a few guns were aimed at Albers Ridge and the outer parts of the front trenches. Once the bombardment stopped at 8.05, the soldiers fixed bayonets and rushed the trenches. All the Germans except the ones on the outer edges of the trench lines had all been annihilated and the British in the middle received practically no resistance. The 18-pounders switched their fire over to the town of Neuve-Chapelle to hit any Germans escaping or coming in to reinforce the situation. A British soldier described the situation before giving the order to advance at 8.05 a.m., saying, quote, The noise almost split our numbed wits. As the shells went over our heads, we grew more and more excited. We couldn't hear each other. Shots from the 18-pounders were screaming not far over our heads and much higher up higher than the highest mountains of Europe. High explosives from the 15-inch howitzers were rushing like express trains. After a while, we could trace the different sounds. There was no difficulty in making out German trenches. They had become long clouds of smoke and dust, flashing continuously with shell burst, and with enormous masses of trench material and bodies sailing high above the smoke cloud. We thought that bombardment was winning the war before our eyes. Incredible that the men of the German front line could have escaped. 
we felt sure we were going to pour through the gap. Lance Corporal William Andrews, 4th Black Watch, end quote. In reality, with the majority of the shelling concentrated at the middle, this left the outer trenches in somewhat standing order. German machine guns at certain points, along with the barbed wire, remained untouched. When the order was given at 8.05 for the men to rush the trenches, this brought on the term, hanging on the old barbed wire. A British officer described coming upon wire, still intact, saying, quote, Almost before I had time to realize it, I found myself up against German wire. It was barbed and twisted and almost unbroken, for the bombardment had proved ineffective at the particular point. Of how we got through the wire, I have no clear idea. I have a vague recollection of tearing at it with my naked hands and, with the help of one of my corporals, dragging away the remains of a cheval de frise, while a German fired at us at a range of only four to five yards and missed us both. After that, the fellow must have bolted, as I remember throwing myself through the remaining strands of wire. Lieutenant Malcolm Kennedy, 2nd Cameronians, Scottish Rifles, end quote. The Cheval de Frise was the, corp the corporal was dragging away is a medieval anti-cavalry device used to stop horses. It's basically a long wooden pole with wooden spikes cutting, coming out for the front and back. Five out of the eight battalions took their first objective with little to no losses, and that's really good compared to all the previous battles. And this did expose one of the important facts to the Battle of Neuf Chapelle, and that was the British were indeed capable of breaking into the German front lines, but how far could they go past that? Now, for those other few battalions not going through the center, well, they didn't fare so good. Once the initial bombardment stopped, the German machine gun teams got in place and made themselves ready. Obviously, they knew something was coming. And when they seen the troops approaching, they opened up, turning them into bloody mulch for the earth. The spraying of bullets were ripping through the soldiers. One man was said to have been seen charging with his bayonet. Then a split second later, a chunk of his head was blown off and the dead weight of the body just hit the earth. Machine guns make ghastly wounds. Men often get shot multiple times. Legs and arms were being ripped off as quickly as you can snap your fingers. Torsos and abdomens were being ripped open, spilling out guts and other blown out organs. Men were having to step through bodies and blood just to push forward. Indian soldiers from the Territorial Battalions suffer the heaviest losses during this time. And some historians will argue they weren't exactly adequately trained. And that's only partially true because for as many as two out of every 10 soldiers were raw soldiers thrown into uniforms when the war broke out. However, they were given training before heading over. I think the debate is more about the British taking average citizens who aren't soldiers like farmers, merchants, etc. and trying to mold them into soldiers almost overnight. But don't mistake what I'm saying for the Indian soldiers not being good fighters. They absolutely were good soldiers and played a vital role during the Great War. I'm just saying they took a large portion of men who were not soldiers and pushed them into battle. Unfortunately, most of these Indian soldiers got thrown towards the outer sides of the trenches and were mowed down by the still standing machine guns. The Indians suffered heavy losses at Neuve Chapelle. The 3rd Londons were in reserve for the first part of the battle, except for Captain Arthur Aegeus and his machine gunners who took part in the first attack. 
His guns were in a position where they could see all that was happening. He described the situation saying, quote, It was hell let loose. The village and the trenches in front of it were blown to bits. The village seemed to melt away before our eyes. The Hun bracketed one of my guns and finally buried it. But no harm done. The infantry assault was launched at 8.05. Nearest us on the right were the 239 Garwals. They went trotting over. Suddenly, I saw a fellow stop, then spin, and spin till he fell. Others pushed on, tried to get through a hedge, east to their left, and got further along. It was wonderful to watch the two attacks converge and meet. End quote. Overall, the British took Neuve Chapelle rather smoothly. Some consider this a triumphant start, but quickly turned into mistakes, confusion, and leadership breakdown. First off, Haig had concentrated the majority of his firepower on a front of only about 2,000 yards wide. This narrow alley in the middle where the majority of the troops would break through would eventually get jammed up. Once everyone got into the front line trenches and didn't know who they were taking orders from because there was a lot of confusion, too many chiefs for a small area. And also because of this, the northern German line had remained just about unscathed by artillery and had machine gun teams ready to take on the British. Now, these machine guns weren't exactly winning the battle for, on the 10th of March, but they did cause British commanders to halt their men until, until they could be dealt with. And this gave the Germans time to regather themselves and their reinforcements. On the 11th of March, the 6th Bavarian Reserves, which Adolf Hitler was currently assigned to as a battalion runner, was ordered to start their counterattack. However, they weren't able to start attacking until the following day. Haig pushed for his troops from the 10th of March to the 12th to take Albers Ridge, but were unsuccessful. The Germans had been growing too strong day by day. The opportunity was lost when they halted their troops on the first day of the attack. Overall, the casualty toll was around 11,600 British soldiers, including territorials, and the Germans 8,600. Overall, major lessons were learned. The Germans learned they could hold off the enemy even when outnumbered, which increased their confidence. And the British believed they failed because they didn't use enough time with the artillery bombardment. Instead of 35 minutes, they needed days. All right, folks, I'm going to start wrapping this up right here. Hope you can see the importance of the Battle of New Chapelle. It wasn't a long battle, but it was bloody. Many soldiers perished, lessons were learned, and tactic, tactics changed because of this. Overall, it wasn't a victory for either side, in my opinion. Thank you for your continued support of the show. If you're on social media, please follow Over the Top, a great war podcast on Facebook and on Instagram at OTTGW Podcast. Please leave, leave me a review if you can. It would be much appreciated. Folks, be smart. Stay healthy. Take it from me. This COVID thing is not fun. It has put me down on my butt, which is also why I, there's, I shortened up the episode. This has not been easy to get through. Please take care of yourselves. Until the next episode, take care, everyone.